There's a question that people have asked for a very long time, and it's a question that Christians have asked, and it's a question that non-Christians have asked. In fact, it's the question that if someone asks it, it's the number one reason why they seek out a church. And that question is, how can I get closer to God? Raise your hand if you've ever asked that question before. How can I get closer to God? Look around. You're in good company. Everyone has pretty much asked that question. If you want to get closer to God, you then begin to ask, well, where do I look? Where do I go? How how do I get closer to God? Where does God live today? And before I answer that, I want to take you through the Bible and show you where God used to live. He had an earthly address. One Tabernacle Drive, Mount Sinai, Egypt. (laughs) And I'm dead serious when I say that. I mean, the Tabernacle is where God dwelled. But then he moved again and again with the Israelites for 40 years. They traveled around the desert in Egypt. And then eventually God made his way to a place we were very familiar with, and that's Jerusalem. In Jerusalem on a mountain called Mount Moriah. It has different names today. Some people call it the Temple Mount. In the Bible, it's referred to as Mount Zion. If you ever read Mount Zion, that's referring to a specific mountain that exists today. The Jewish people call it Mount Moriah. Others call it the Temple Mount. There's some, well, there's some things that uh, are happening there and will happen, as I'll get into today. But in Exodus, Moses was given directions on how to build this special place Just to give you perspective in terms of the size of it, the most holy place was a 15, so inside that tabernacle, that covered place, there was two parts to it. The most holy place, where the priest would only go once a year, was 15 by 15 feet. So they measured in cubits, which a cubit is about 18 inches, but 15 by 15. Now, if you live in St. Clair Shores, your biggest bedroom is probably 12 by 12, maybe 12 by 15 if you got lucky. All right, there's not a lot of big bedrooms in St. Clair Shores, but that's the size, a bedroom is about the size of the most holy place. The holy place was 15 feet by 30 feet, and that's where you saw the, the, the lampstand, the table of showbread. This center section in our sanctuary with the comfy seats is almost exactly the size of the tabernacle the holy place and the most holy place, the covered tabernacle, referring to that. This center section, and I measured it today. All right, it's, it is 15 feet by 45 feet. 15 feet by 45 feet. So that was the tabernacle, the covered part. Now, the outer perimeter was larger, much larger. It was 75 feet by 150 feet. This building is 40 feet wide and goes about 120 feet from wall to wall. So a little bit larger, a little 30 feet out, 30 feet this way. A little bit larger was the perimeter. And that's where God would dwell, specifically in the most holy place, in that little room, that 15 by 15 room. And when the Israelites wanted to get closer to God, they would come to the tabernacle. Remember that when they left Egypt, they left, by following the cloud and the fire that looked like a pillar. That was what God, that's how God showed his presence. 
So what happened when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle and finally assembled it in Exodus, chapter 40, he anointed it with oil. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. God is there. But God did more to show him that he was there. In Exodus 40, verse 34, we'll see it. The cloud, that's God, covered the tent of the meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 36 says, Whenever they went out on their journeys throughout the desert, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. They followed God. Verse 38 says, The cloud of the tabernacle of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was on it by night. So even, they had a nightlight. Let's just say it that way. They had a nightlight. They could see that God was still there. He was still present. They could get closer to him. And this was in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Their camp, when they camped, because they were nomadic, they would all camp around the tabernacle. The tabernacle where God dwelled was the center of their community. All of this took place about 1445 B.C. So from a history, if you're a history buff, I'm just going to throw out a couple of dates so you can kind of understand, you know, about 3,500 years ago, this is what was going on in Mount Sinai in Egypt with the tabernacle. God was dwelling. For 450 years, that's the way it was. When they traveled throughout the desert, when they finally crossed the Jordan River and went into the promised land as God told them they would do, and they made their way um, throughout the promised land and spread out, they had the tabernacle. If they wanted to get close to God, they would go to the tabernacle. Now, the priests would be there ministering daily, doing what you kind of saw in the video they, they had to do to um, receive forgiveness. But eventually, this nation of Israel, which at this point is about two and a half million people, this nation of Israel desired to be like all the other nations around them. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, as you know, Romans 12, 2 says, don't try to fit into the world. Don't conform to the pattern of the world. Israel tried to conform to the pattern of the world. They wanted a king because everybody else had a king. They, didn't, they, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't accepting that God was their king, so they wanted an earthly king. And I'm thankful that nothing we can do can mess up God's plan because God has an ultimate plan, but God does allow sometimes for us to go down roads that he doesn't really approve of, but he allows us to go down them. Israel went down a road where they took on an earthly king. The second king that they had, first it was King Saul, then it was King David. From King David is to come the Jewish Messiah. Messiah is a term that simply means anointed one. One who will rule over us. Who will, who will save us. So they're still looking for it. If, you, if, if you're Jewish, if you follow Judaism, if that's your religion then you're still waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one. Well, they had kings, and King David was their, was their king at the time, and something that King David did would change the course of where God would dwell in their midst. Because they would go to the tabernacle. Well, David got prideful, as many powerful leaders do. David got prideful. And he desired that he was going to take a census of his army. He just wanted to know how power. He had already conquered 
all of the land, and yet he still wanted to know, well, how many people do I have? And you may have done something like this before. Have you ever done something, please don't admit it out loud, but have you ever done something really dumb, really bad, and your excuse was, the devil made me do it? All right, listen, the devil can't make you do anything, but he can persuade you. If you look at 1 Chronicles 21.1, King David, a man after God's own heart, that's, that's David. It says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David. That means he persuaded David to number Israel. I mean, this is a man after God's own heart. So if he can do this, so can you do this. So this is why it's important to understand that, yeah, he can, we can be persuaded. Now, there's no time today to go into what happened in this chapter. I encourage you to read it, 1 Chronicles 21. You'll, you'll be fascinated as to what happened in that chapter. It's the final outcome that I want to focus on. Because of David's sin, and he took responsibility for it, that's the kind of man he was, Israel lost many lives. The angel of the Lord took many lives. And the only reason that it stopped is because David confessed his sin and begged God for forgiveness. And as the angel commanded him when he confessed his sin and asked God to forgive him, David was told to build an altar where he was. Well, actually, it was close to where he was in a specific place. Because where he should have gone to offer sacrifices to the Lord was five miles away in Gibeon, the tabernacle, where the priests were, and they do the ministry. They do the sacrifices. The Levite tribe, the one of the 12 tribes of Israel, were responsible for doing the sacrifices. But David was following God. He was following the command, and he made some sacrifices in a significant place. If you go back to Genesis 22, you might remember Abraham was told to take his son Isaac, his promised son, and take him to a place and offer him to the Lord. And it was very confusing to Abraham that he would be told this, but at that place there when he was about to take the life of his own son as an offering to the Lord, God provided a lamb. And he called that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. That place is Mount Moriah. That place is where David built an altar and made sacrifices. That place is where God told David, you prepare to build for me a temple. You won't get to build it. Your son Solomon's going to build it. But you prepare the provisions. And this is where I will dwell permanently with my people. This was very significant because before that, God was dwelling all over with the tabernacle in the ark in the most holy place. You might find this interesting. The amount of gold and silver that was provided for the temple. Seven and a half million pounds of gold David amassed. Seventy-five million pounds of silver to build the temple. And Solomon built it, and it was amazing. On Mount Moriah, they built the temple for God to dwell in. And in 2 Chronicles, Solomon dedicates the temple when it's finally built, and he says a prayer. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple again, filled the temple with smoke, with a cloud. 
And the minister, the priest there, they couldn't even minister. It was just completely like God was there filling this temple. The Jewish people call it the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. That's what they call it. They understand that God dwelled in the temple. And that beautiful temple, what was known as Solomon's temple, lasted for a very long time, almost 500 years, until 586 B.C. Because Israel had slowly faded away, king after king. Some kings would honor God, some wouldn't. And they faded away from God's commands. They became less and less holy and more and more like everyone else. They were overtaken by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, 586 B.C., looted all of its belongings. For 70 years, there was no temple. And as we would say today, he gone. God was not there. Rebuilt by a guy named Zerubbabel 70 years later. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. By the way, if I have another son, not possible, but if I did, I'd name him Zerubbabel. I love that name. Zerubbabel. Ethan's here. I'm sure he's glad his name isn't Zerubbabel. But the temple was rebuilt. The priests did their duties again. And there was definitely, there definitely was repentance and confession. And there was a return to the old way. But what you won't read, and I didn't see it anywhere, is that the glory of the Lord filling the temple again. Which I, I, I think is somewhat interesting. So the temple went on for years and years and years until 12 B.C. In 12 B.C., Herod the Great was, was in charge of that area in Jerusalem. Herod the Great decided to make the temple great again. He gave it a facelift, made the walls a little higher, made it a little bit bigger, made it a little fancier. And Herod's temple was there when Jesus lived. When you read the Bible and you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see when they talk about the temple, going to the temple, that's, that's what they call Herod's temple. He took Solomon's, well, rebuilt temple, if you will, and he built it even better. And so, uh, so nice, by the way, that in Mark 13, some of the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus came out of this temple, and the disciple asked him, look, teacher, verse 1, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicted that th that temple, Herod's temple, would be destroyed. And it was. In 70 AD. In 70 AD. About 40 years, maybe 50 years after Jesus said this. What happened to the Roman Empire? It imploded. Titus was the emperor, and he burned the city. He burned the temple. There was anarchy within. And Josephus, who's a famous Jewish historian, wrote about this because he was there, and he wrote about it in detail. And he recorded that when the temple burned, all that gold and silver, it just sort of melted into the cracks in the floor. And because the Roman soldiers didn't get pay and they wanted their money, they literally ripped up the stones to get the gold that had gone into the floor. And so what Jesus said was is that the entire temple would be destroyed. No stone unturned. It literally happened, as he said. Now, over the next centuries, many things happened on Mount Moriah, on this famous place. 
But something that's very notable, and it's the reason why what's there it is today, is in 705 AD, a small mosque was built to commemorate Muhammad's night journey to Jerusalem. And on this famous mountain is called the Dome of the Rock. It holds the Al-Aqsa Mosque for the Muslims. It's the farthest mosque. This is the most sought-after piece of real estate in the world, and it's under the control of the Jerusalem Islamic Waqf. It's a trust that manages Islamic structures. Nobody can go there unless they're Muslim. Non-Muslims are prohibited. It's the third holiest site in Islam, but yet it still remains the holiest site in Judaism. And they believe they will build their temple again there. But right now, they can't go there. There's a wailing wall that separates them, if you're familiar. For Christians, we, we revere this site, Mount Zion. It's it's going to be a place prominent in the future. God has big plans for this mountain. If you study the prophecies, I'm going to, if you don't, I'm going to give you a little teaser, hopefully, that you will see some of this and, and find it interesting. The Jewish people, or those that follow Judaism, are currently making, right now in Israel, preparations to rebuild the temple. The third temple, that's what it's called because it will be the third rebuild, will be according to what we see in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Ezekiel prophesied a new temple, bigger than Solomon's temple, bigger than Herod's temple. And because of what Scripture says in Ezekiel, the Jewish people believe that this is where God will come and dwell again. This is how they will get closer to God. They want to get closer to God just like you want to get closer to God. And they believe that the way to make it happen is Get the temple built again. And so they're making preparations. Look what it says in Ezekiel 43.7. They read the same scripture that we do in the Old Testament. They just don't read the New Testament. Jewish people. Judaism. There are those that are Jewish that are Messianic Jews, as we call them, that follow Christ and believe Christ is the Messiah, but most do not. Ezekiel said, son of, uh, God said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, speaking of the temple, to be built, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. This is the temple the Jewish people are preparing to build. Right now in Israel, they're making preparations. They're training priests from the specific tribe of Levi to make this happen, to do the animal sacrifices when the temple is built on that land that they can't get to right now. They're even breeding a red heifer because in Scripture it says that the red heifer cannot be yoked and it must come from Israel. They're doing that right now. This is their end times plan. They have a plan. They believe it's God's plan. They're anticipating, which it says in Ezekiel, a prince to come. He will be their Messiah. He will be a world leader. He will restore Mount Moriah to them so they can build this temple. Everything hinges on the temple being rebuilt. And they believe that God will gather all Jewish people from all over the world, bring them back to Jerusalem. When the Messiah comes, he will be a world leader. He will bring world peace. There will be no more wars or famine. All mankind will worship one God, live a more spiritual and moral way of life, and God will dwell with man on earth forever. That's what they believe is God's plan for the world, for the end times. Now Christians... 
Well, we believe God has a little different plan. We read Revelation, and we see something a little different, don't we? You've read Revelation? Some of you are like, oh, no, 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 that's scary. No, no, too confusing. I'm not reading that. I tried once. I don't get it. Listen, if you want to understand Revelation, join me Wednesday nights starting in September. I'm going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. Come here on Wednesday nights at 7, and we will learn together about Revelation, and we will understand it. We will understand what's going to happen. What we see in Revelation is a seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year reign of the Messiah. And I'll be honest with you, Christians don't really agree on when it's going to happen. We don't, some of them don't agree on how it's going to happen. Um, because a lot of people interpret Revelation literally, and some interpret it figuratively. But we do agree it's going to happen. It's going to happen. God gave us the book of Revelation so we know that it's going to happen and what's going to happen. But think about this for a second. Judaism believes they know God's plan and program for the end times. Christianity believes they know God's plan and program for the end times. Is it possible that God can work through both of those plans and programs to complete his plan and program? I believe he can. I believe he's been doing that forever. He will do it. The nation of Israel will get their mountain back. They'll get their holy site back. There will be a world leader. Ezekiel calls a prince. The Jews will believe he's their Messiah. They will build the temple. They will make their sacrifices. And everything will seem to be going great for about three and a half years. And then the second half of the tribulation will come, and it's going to get ugly, and there's going to be a war. And Christians, well, depending on what you were told or what you actually believe from studying Scripture, you may be here, you may not be here, depending on what you take as the rapture. But when the fighting ends, the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven, descend upon earth, and there will no longer be a need for a temple. Because God will dwell in New Jerusalem. He will be with us, and there will not be darkness. It will be 24-7 light, as if we, we don't even have a clock anymore. We don't even need time. It's eternity. And there will come that time when we can get as close to God as we want, any time of the day. It's as easy as ABC, one, two, three, as eating pie or a piece of cake, however you like your analogy. But until that time... It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Because the temple doesn't exist. Or does it exist? Jesus had something to say about the temple. He went inside it, saw that they were making money instead of using it as a house of prayer. And he overturned the tables. He got pretty angry. If you ever wondered if Jesus got angry? He did. It got angry. It was a righteous anger. And he made a statement that they didn't really understand. He said to the people, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. Well, they didn't understand because they thought he was talking about Herod's temple, which took like 46 years to rebuild. They said, I don't get it. Well, he wasn't really talking about that temple. He was talking about what? His body. He was saying the temple is the body. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this, verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, when you read that, you may assume that you is referring to you as an individual. It's not. It's plural. That's the kind of problem with our English language sometimes, is you is singular, but it's also plural. When Paul is using it in this context, it's plural. He's talking about you, the church which we often call the body of Christ. So that's the temple of God, the body of Christ. The church, here, right now, we're the body of Christ. As Christians, we're the temple of God. And then he goes on to say, in the same letter to the church in Corinth, you also, as an individual person, as an individual Christian, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now it's singular. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This church had a real problem with sexual immorality. And he was telling them, your body is important to God. It's a temple. So we see here in this letter and with Jesus' words, There's a wonderful reason you should come to church every Sunday. The wonderful reason is, is that when you come together, God dwells in our midst. Because God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again of the Holy Spirit. You don't become a Christian because when you were a baby, they baptized you. Or you came forward one time and said a prayer. No. You become a Christian when you are born again by the Holy Spirit, when God puts His Spirit in you. And now you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you come together, this is the easy part, just show up on Sunday at 11 here on 10 Mile, and you get to be in the presence of God. You get to get closer to God because you're in the midst of everyone else. And there's a verse that we love to say, Matthew 18, 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Many people love that verse. Why I'm kind of chuckling is because that verse is really talking about church discipline. Jesus was pointing out that, listen, if you have to discipline someone for not living a holy lifestyle, and they repeatedly are doing this, and you have to bring them before the church... He's saying, listen, if there's two or three of you that are in agreement that this person is not living like a Christian and not not repenting of their sin, then you need to remove them from the church. And that's what Jesus said. Hey, we're two or three are gathered to do church discipline. I'm there with you. But he's there with us in all things as we worship God together. In fact, Peter said it like this, 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you want to get closer to God, you come here on Sunday and we worship God together. And you understand the Bible together. And you give faithfully together. And you love one another together. There's over 20 commands in the Bible to love one another. And that's why our, our purpose statement here, 
our vision statement, our mission statement, whatever you want to call it is, we are here to help you get closer to God, understand the Bible, and love one another. That's why we exist at Life of Purpose. That's why we did this 18 years ago, as Joe shared. Because we want to help people get closer to God, understand the Bible, and love one another. And that's really the good news. That's the easy part. You want to get closer to God? Show up on Sunday, worship together, love one another, give faithfully, understand the Bible together. But the other part, the other way to get closer to God is not so easy. Speaking from experience, it's not so easy. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes another letter to the same church, and he tells them this. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, a false god? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, and he quotes Exodus, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul understood when he said this, that he was speaking to Christians, not just Jewish people. The Jewish people understood the concept of the tabernacle and the temple. They understood that's where you get closer to God. Go to the temple, go to the tabernacle. But Paul was teaching them a new truth. The truth is is that the temple is not that building. The temple is you. It's you. And you are to be holy as I am holy. I mean, you want a summary of the first five books of the Bible? There it is. It's in Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. God wants you to be holy. And the way to holiness is through confession and repentance. If you want to get closer to God, you've got to come clean with Him. If you want to get closer to God, you've got to come clean with God. Because the very next verse, Paul says this. So now that you understand the temple of the living God and you need to be set apart, he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If you want to get closer to God, you must come clean with God. And that's why it's not easy, because confession and repentance, that's not always fun. Admitting, admitting that you have done something wrong. I think it's always interesting how when you, when you confront someone, especially when it's a little child, like, did you eat the chocolate chip cookie? And their first answer is no. But they have chocolate all over their face. We're no different. I don't care if you're 20, 40, 60. When someone asks you, did you do that? It's like our first instinct is, no, I'm innocent but we're not, are we? Confession and repentance. 
seems to go against our nature. But God is calling us to do it. If you want to get holy, if you want to, if you want to get closer to God, you've got to be holy as he is holy. And the way to do that is to come clean with God. You know, by definition, to confess is simply to speak the same as, to be in agreement with. That's what confess means. So when you confess to God, when the Bible tells you you should confess your sins to him, it's not as if God is like, really? I didn't know you did that. You're in agreement with what he already knows. There are no secrets with God. He already knows. Just admit it. Get it out there. You haven't been living a holy life. You haven't honored him in this area. And then repent. Repent, by definition, means to turn away and stop doing. So when you confess and repent, you're saying to God, I don't want to keep repeating this sin. It's not that you will never do it again. It's just, I don't want to do it. There's, a, there's something in you that says, this, this, I hate this. The prodigal son hated living in the pig pen. So he went home to be with the father. The pig likes the pig pen and stays there. Which are you? If you're wanting to get back to the father, this is how you do it. Confession and repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a really hard time recalling all that I've done that has been unholy. And last week we talked about the fruits of the Spirit, which is a result of when we let the Holy Spirit control our lives, when we let the Word of Christ richly dwell in us, when we read the Word of God and it transforms us and changes our mind and changes the way we think and we begin to walk with the Lord, then the fruits of the Spirit come out. One of the ways to help you in your confession is to look at the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. The opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. Like, what's the opposite of love? Hate. Bitterness. What's the opposite of joy? Complaining. Self-loathing. What's the opposite of peace? Anxiety. Inner conflict. These are fruits of the flesh. So, I'm going to read to you those fruits of the flesh. And if something resonates, if something comes to mind like, oh yeah, I need to confess that to God. Do it right now on the spot. Don't let today escape you. Do it today. God knows all the details. Just like you know all the details. You just need to confess that to God. Own it and confess it to him. Dr. James Reeves said this, relationships thrive in the light of honesty, but they die in the darkness of deception. First John says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin. Isn't that a wonderful passage? So are you ready to be honest with yourself and with God? If you are, it'll help you draw closer to Him. You want to get closer to God? Confess and repent. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and as I read these words, if something comes to mind that you need to confess, just say it. God, I confess that. I own up to it. 
And when I get through, I'll read one more verse, I'll pray for you, and we'll sing our final song. Unloving or bitterness? Complaining or self-loathing? Anxiety or inner conflict? Impatient or irritable? Unkind or uncaring? Selfish? Or defensive? Untrustworthy? Anger or rage? Impulsive? First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, which you have done, God is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I thank you for hearing our confession. Father, we repent of all of these things. And perhaps, Lord, as we continue to do this, or have more times of confession in our own devotional time with you, and our own time with you. God, may you continue to forgive us, cleanse us, help us to be free, help us to turn away and to never do it again. Help us to be holy as you are holy. God, we thank you for your grace. Because your grace will surpass anything we've ever done. No matter how bad it is, your grace is sufficient. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for your son who came and lived and died and rose again so that we could do this today, so that we could be forgiven. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. As we sing this final song, if you feel the... the the, uh, desire to come forward and kneel at the altar and pray, you may do that. Some of our folks from our prayer team will pray with you if you ask them to. But if you just want time to yourself and just want to come up and, and pray, you can pray at your seat, wherever. But as we sing this final song, use this time to worship God. Amen.